Today on CityCast DC, we are talking about the recent threats against Children's National Hospital, the war-free opening, and is there such a thing as too progressive for DC politics? I'm here with audio producer Julia Karen and newsletter editor Kayla Cote-Stemmerman to hammer it all out. Today is Friday, October 7th, 2022. I'm Michael Schaefer, and this is CityCast DC. All right, we're going to start with our One of Us segment. And today, the One of Us is actually a thing, not a person. And it's Children's National Hospital. Julia, tell us what's happening there. It's kind of weird and concerning. Yeah. So over the summer, there were threats against Children's National Hospital uh, because they provide uh, gender affirming care for trans children. Someone on Twitter basically called and imitated a person who said, hey, I would like to get a gender affirming hysterectomy for my child. The hospital, the employees who picked up didn't quite know what they were talking about. But in the end, they said, you know, yes, we do provide this care for your child. And after that, this person posted it on all of their social media, and then the hospital got inundated with threats, like violent threats. It was so bad that it actually shut down the hospital's website. The hospital eventually, you know, corrected the record on it, but this isn't just happening in D.C. It happened in Boston. Mike, your co-host, Bridget Todd, and I, we got to talk to Mia Gingrich of Media Matters. And she basically said that, yes, like this is widespread across the country. D.C. isn't the only place where this has happened, where they've gotten these kind of threats. They certainly do like to target institutions that are in more liberal areas, but that doesn't always hold true. Currently, they're attacking a hospital uh, that's in Tennessee. Children's National, along with it just being a, a large hospital, is just one of the kind of like almost random victims of lips of TikTok's scattered approach to finding any target that fits fits her kind of modus operandi of uh, a narrative that fits into her worldview. Mia mentioned it happened in Tennessee, so it's kind of everywhere. And, and Mia's point after the fact was basically, like, it isn't just going to be, you know, hospitals that are targeted over this kind of stuff. Uh, it's going to be other institutions as well. This isn't just an attack against um, children's hospitals uh, or against one children's hospital. It's a harassment campaign that's been targeting teachers and schools, businesses. It's resulted in legislative attacks or been featured alongside legislative attacks. And across the spectrum right now, LGBTQ people in America and especially trans people are seeing themselves with a target on their back because of people who see attacking them as a political opportunity. So is this just like the price we pay for living in America in 2022 and and we're in a big city where the large institutions of the city are perceived as being on one side in these culture wars? I think there is definitely something to be said about the fact that like, yes, we live in a very big metropolitan area. It happens to lean liberal. There happen to be a lot of, you know, hospitals and institutions that are, I think, as, you know, these people would say, are definitely more liberal. I think the scarier thing, actually, is that it isn't just that it's like the price we pay potentially for living in a big city. Like, obviously, there have been historic attacks that have happened in our nation's capital because of where it's positioned, because it is, you know, the center of power in our country. I think the fact that this person, you know, carried out this threat 
and posted about this and made it happen because it was DC definitely has some power. But I think one of the other things about this is that it's just kind of across the country. The rhyme and reason is that, you know, it's just attacking places that happen to have trans affirming care. It isn't necessarily just like, ah, yes, like we need to attack every major liberal city. So, but what is children's or the DC government or anyone doing? You know, if you are somebody who has to take your child to children's for like allergy shots or I don't know, something, what are they or the city government doing to make us feel safe from that? You're not going to get caught in the crossfire of some uh, lunatic attack against them. So Mia spoke to this. Basically, what the hospital did was they clarified via a press release what they actually do for trans-affirming care. The hospital was very quick to correct the misinformation that its uh, non-health care providing staff did provide. And I think that kind of strategy in providing clear and concise communication is important for hospitals um, to provide, as Children's National did. It is kind of scary to think, like, you know, there's potential that the place that I want to just get my kid an allergy shot could be attacked. It is scary. So where did this all start? Because I, I don't, it wasn't in DC, right? It was in Boston. Yeah. So there had been threats in Boston. The FBI actually thwarted a potential bomb attack in Boston, which is sad because like a lot of this is just like kids need care too. And kids are people too. Right. And they should be able to access the care that they need. So then the fact that these hospitals aren't actually providing gender-affirming care, which includes genital surgery, means that a lot of these comments, you know, by Fox News and on TikTok and all these things that we're seeing are actually not true, right? Because they're saying that, you know, it's, you know, mutilation of children or other violent-sounding accusations are not true. Is that correct in your understanding, Julia? So one of the things that the hospitals across the nation have done is they've like stripped whether or not they have gender affirming care from their websites, which is wow. scary if you have a kid and they just want to be themselves and, you know, they're nervous about talking to someone. I think having a phone call with an adult, yeah, it might be safer, but it also might mean you have to bring your child in and go on a case by case basis to kind of figure out with their doctor, okay, you know, what are we going to do about this? Which is scary within itself. It's a big, you know, important topic. At the same time, like not having accessible information is also really, really scary. All right, let's talk about the bigger picture. It's a segment we do where we take a little thing and we talk about the bigger implications of what it means. A couple of days ago, there was a standard election season event here in D.C., which is the Washington Post's endorsements came out for, the, in this case, for the D.C. council races. And this is a sort of an interesting thing for me as a media nerd. The Post endorsement used to be this huge deal because, you know, this is this weird city where, like, there's people who can tell you, like, everything about, like, how Iowa voted in, like, 1988 but can't name their D.C. council member. And so a lot of people used to just go by the Post endorsements. But like all newspapers and like all newspaper endorsements, it has become relatively less important over the years, although I think it's still pretty important. And I guess we're about to find out. One of the things that I thought was interesting in this is that the people they endorsed this year, it really sort of clarified something that people who watch city politics have known for a while, which is that the real divide in city politics is between the left and the sort of center, center left. 
So the Post's endorsements, they endorsed Kenyon McDuffie, who is, he is a member of the D.C. Council, but now he's running from Ward 5. He's now running for an at-large race. And he, according to the Post, is more centrist than Alyssa Silverman, who's an incumbent at-large member who is perceived as sort of the anchor of the left-wing bloc. And they said quite explicitly, like, she wants it to tilt left, and we don't think that's a good idea. And similarly, up in uh, Ward 3, the Post uh, endorsed a Republican candidate against Matt Fruman, who is, again, they say quite explicitly left, and they don't think that's the right thing to do. It's one of my rants about DC politics, and I think of this walking around town, is there are so many posters up on, on every light post and intersection, and none of them say what the candidate stands for. They all just have like their name, you know, or sometimes their picture. And so for people who are not like close followers of this, you go into the polling place kind of ignorant, like, I'm a centrist, who should I vote for? I'm a lefty, who should I vote for? And unless you've done your homework, you might not know. It was nice to see it like rendered so bracingly, even if you don't agree with it. Yeah. So so one thing I found like very fascinating about this endorsement, I just want to read the Matt Fruman bit because I think kind of reveals where they're going with this. As the Democratic nominee, Matthew Fruman is likely to win, and there is much to recommend him. Long active in the community, Mr. Fruman knows its needs, and he strives to bring people together. But, here's the big but, he leans left, and that's not the direction the council or city needs. Republican opponent David Krusoff is a centrist who argues for lower taxes, better support for the police, and continuing mayoral control of schools. These are the right positions, and one-party rule has been unhealthy for D.C., and that's why they endorsed Krusoff, which is funny because, like, Fruman knows the area and he's been active. Wouldn't people want the candidate who's been active in the community for a long time? And why is one party rule bad for D.C.? Look, it. I think in general, you want people who hold public office to be scared that they might not get to hold public office anymore if they screw up. So in that sense, one party rule is is not great. And you have overwhelming majority of people in the district are registered Democrats. I am. Um, it's the only way to kind of have a relevant vote in the uh, election because most of the key elections happen in the primaries. But what that means is you have effectively ceded to a smaller subset of the electorate the uh, choice of who gets to be there. The city you know, as people experienced it in the 80s and 90s, was a place where the budget was a wreck. It was broke. The public housing was disastrous and dangerous for people. The city was put into effectively into receivership uh, as a result of its budget, meaning that a bunch of people in Congress were getting to call the shots on things. And I think there is a segment of the population, and they're not evil, who are going to th- who are thinking like, "Hey, we got to watch with the." Uh, like $100 a month metro giveaways for people. We got to watch with that sort of stuff because if like the national economy goes bad and the real estate market goes bad, which is where a lot of cities, the city's uh, revenue and prosperity comes from, if those things happen, then all of a sudden you're left with a huge hole and it's going to necessitate cutting like essential stuff for people who need it. So that's the centrist argument. And it's, there's nothing inherently evil about it, but it, it's, it's just sort of interesting of where we are in Washington right now, that that's like one side that's increasingly explicit about itself. But there's also a progressive argument that says like, look, this is a city with tremendous amounts of wealth going on and embarrassing amounts of inequality. And we can use the power of government to level some of that out. So then what are some of like Alyssa Silverman's positions that are so far left that that the Post is like, mm, nah, maybe not. Pass. I mean, look, she's been the sort of main target of the business community uh, mm. since she's been there. And they've because she is an independent at-large member, she's inherently in a more vulnerable position. And there's been 
pretty well-funded efforts, including this year, to knock her off. She is forced behind family leave measure, which the business community has been very wary of, and is sort of seen by business types as this, like, you know, mastermind of uh, of the lefty <laughs> uh, of lefty march. Interesting. There's knocks on the lefties too, from like the left and the DC Council didn't acquit itself great in terms of like helping parents get their kids back into school instead mm. of helping schools reopen. Yeah. There was a left wing challenger against the city council chairman, uh, Phil Mendelson, who was not successful. The left-wing challengers against the, the incumbent mayor, Mario Bowser, were not successful. So it's like it's not like we're in a moment where the the local left is ascendant and unstoppable, but it is an interesting divide, and I think it's going to become more pronounced because they got a couple more council seats now. And what about the other Democratic nominees? You know, Bowser, Mendelssohn, Norton, where does this leave them? Well, I think Norton's a special case because she's like an icon. And uh, the tension, you know, in the, the council that we've watched for some time is between activist progressive proposals, resistance about what they might do to the budget or to the business climate or whatever. And that uh, resistance is sometimes excuse making and it's sometimes very legit. And for better or worse, Bowser and Mendelssohn, who you know have their own troubles between them, have become the face of that resistance. Right, right. Well, if somebody wanted to go beyond the post endorsement, um, what would you recommend to uh, get in the know for the ele- upcoming election? Oh, I would recommend they read your newsletter, Kayla. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> oh, and people can send us their questions too. You know, we're going to be doing more election coverage. And if you send us a question, uh, Kayla will personally go out and report the answer <laughs> in tremendous detail. Uh, <laughs> I will indeed. On a less electorally fraught matter, or the, although maybe more fraught on the matters of your personal budget, the Wharf is uh, opening a new segment, and uh, Kayla's going to tell us about it. Yeah, I always get the fun one. I love that. The Wharf's phase two is going to be opening. It's a $3.6 billion development, and it's going to be opening on October 12th, which is Wednesday. And it looks insane. There's going to be celebrity kitchens and restaurants. There's going to be new hotels, new bars. There's going to be a $12 million penthouse in one of these apartment buildings. It's going to be the wharf, you know, but like times three. Well, this development has been in the making for three years. And some of the new tenants, the new restaurants and the new hotels and stuff like that aren't going to be opening immediately, but they'll be opening throughout the next year, the next two years. And there's going to be a few new businesses as well that are coming in, a couple of law firms. The Atlantic's headquarters are now going to be there. All in all, it's a great place to go spend your money if you want to. And I don't know, what do you guys think? I mean, you were both here when the wharf was just a wharf. What is this going to look like for DC? Nothing says luxury like the presence of a 150-year-old venerated magazine of ideas. True. <laughs> but look at some colleagues and I had lunch a few years ago with Monty Hoffman, who's the developer of the wharf. And I remember thinking afterwards, like, no way is this thing going to work. You know, I thought DC has expanded so much and gotten so glittery. And this is like the moment when we are mocking the gods and they are going to snap right back at us. And I was totally wrong. That thing seems to be going gangbusters. I don't get it. I mean, it's not super convenient to public transit. It's 
really expensive. It doesn't feel like super authentic for whatever that's worth. Although it's got good places it and it's pretty. It's almost like a pretty. tourist attraction. Like whenever I go there, I'm like, these people are not from DC. Like these people in their high heels and like slinky dresses are not what I'm used to seeing. Right. And I think if you look at a map, it's like awfully close to where a lot of people in Northern Virginia live. And so if you are looking for a night on the town, it's a pretty good way to do it. So I think the developers of it maybe had folks in mind that were not necessarily the folks that uh, any of us have in mind when we're thinking about like who populates a bustling DC neighborhood. Yeah, I, I think there is something to be said about the fact that like it feels like it has no character. My brother and I have been talking about this because he went to college in Boston and the Seaport District was very similar. My mom's line and my uncle's lines have been, yeah, that was originally where you'd you know, tie concrete boots to people and send them under. And now the Seaport District in Boston is literally like, it looks like the wharf. The wharf looks like the Seaport District. It's fancy built up buildings, really fancy restaurants, overlooks bodies of water, which I think people in DC have kind of been craving besides Georgetown. I think, you know, waterfront property is really scarce. I think they've made the best of what is a really good situation. I just hope they, you know, make the parking less expensive so I can actually go and try this new Gordon Ramsay restaurant. That's my goal. Yeah, yeah. there's a lot of new restaurants coming. We've got Blank Street Coffee, which is delicious. We have another Bar Taco. We have Limani, which is like a Spanish-inspired restaurant. Another Lucky Buns. Another Milk and Honey Cafe. A lot of things that we've already seen but we love and are going to be putting in their second or third location here. And then most importantly, perhaps, Gordon Ramsay's Hell's Kitchen is coming, which is very exciting. Um, Why is this so exciting to you? Well, it's our first Gordon Ramsay, you know, celebrity restaurant in years Um, right in years yeah and he's also bringing um gordon ramsay fish and chips which feels very appropriate to the wharf will i go probably not but it's kind of cool well you know you've been to the wharf recently as we all learned yes yes just to let everyone in on an internal city cast secret we were all going out to dinner a couple weeks ago and kayla who was late called us (laughs) from the wharf where she thought we were meeting. Uh, we were not at the wharf. <laughs> yeah, I, I mistakenly thought we were going to Moon Rabbit, which I was so excited about. Turns out we were going to another great restaurant, so it was fine. But I did find myself at the wharf, severely underdressed and alone. And it was not the best experience. I'm not going not gonna to lie. It was really crowded. There was a lot of traffic getting there and getting out. Everybody was dressed to the nines, walking around, taking pictures. And I was just running around desperately trying to call my boss to say I was late to dinner. (laughs) I wonder if this new section of this is actually going to help it be more spread out and feel a little Mm. less touristy. Because instead of having everyone just congregate in like one section, you now have potentially two sections to kind of spread out, take your time. I don't think it will fix the, you know, high heels dressed to the nines problem that you faced, though. I think that's here to stay. Well, there's actually going to be a mile long, like walk from one side to the other. So that's pretty far. It's larger than it is now, I think. So we'll see. We'll have to have our next team dinner down there for real and check it out. (laughs) That's all for today here on CityCast DC. Our lead producer is Priyanka Tilvey. Our producer is Julia Karen. Our newsletter writer is Kayla Cote Stemmerman. And our hosts are Bridget Todd and me, Michael Schaefer from Politico. Music is by Alex Roldan. If you enjoyed the show, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. And while you're enjoying the long weekend, tell your friends about us too. We're taking Monday off for Indigenous Peoples Day slash Columbus Day slash I don't know. But we'll be back Tuesday morning with more news from around the city. Bye. 
Sorry, there's a massive truck going outside my door. <laughs> Don't you know we're in the middle of a news roundup? <laughs>